0: This is the Just World Podcast, audio to help build a just and peaceful world. I'm Helena Cobbin, the CEO of Just World Books. Earlier today, I had a fascinating conversation with Ambassador Chaz W. Freeman, Jr., the distinguished former American diplomatist, whose book, America's Continuing Misadventures in the Middle East, we were lucky enough to publish in late May. As we had previously agreed, Our conversation dealt primarily with the interactions between issues in the Middle East and this year's election campaign here in the United States. In the course of the conversation, Freeman gave his view of the impact of the recently reported internal letter that 51 junior or mid-level U.S. diplomats signed on to, in which they called for tougher military action against Syria's President Assad. He gave his assessments of the effectiveness of Russia's military intervention in Syria, of the BDS boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement in support of Palestinian rights, and of the activities of the right-wing part of the organized Jewish community in the United States. To fully appreciate the depth of Chas Freeman's expertise on matters connected with U.S. policy in the Middle East, you'll have to read his book which is available from fine retailers everywhere. Be sure to ask for America's continuing misadventures in the Middle East, not his earlier volume of a similar name. But in the meantime, until you can get hold of your copy of the book, or even if you already have one in hand, I hope you can enjoy and learn something, as I certainly did, from this audio conversation with a true maestro of the art of diplomacy. By the way, toward the end of our discussion, we found we'd run out of time, and Chas Freeman had to leave a little abruptly to take another phone call. Tomorrow, he's off to Berlin. I was lucky to catch him before he left. So let's dive right on into this 37-minute recording. So first of all, if we look at the interaction between um,
1: the Middle East, broadly speaking, and, and the United States during this lead up to the election here in November. I'm looking at kind of three areas in which there is a, an overlap, an interaction. One would be radical Islamist terrorism. One would be the question of Syria, which has become highly politicized in this country. And the other is the question of Palestine, which has always been highly politicized here. So talking first about Islamist terrorism, um, I thought it was interesting, actually, in response to the Orlando shootings um, of early June, that Donald Trump, seemed, it seemed to harm him, his sort of knee-jerk Islamophobic response at, at this point, toward the end of June, is looking as though it's harmed him. But how do you see this thing playing out um you know obviously we don't know what the scenarios are but donald trump is clearly a phenomenon um and one who has risen on a sort of rising wave of islamophobia in this country do you see this um being an ongoing issue in our election
2: Um, i think the middle east is by and large not a direct issue or the Issues in the Middle East are not uh, being discussed directly in this uh, in this campaign, but um, the debacles of the last of this century, really, in the Middle East, uh, weigh heavily on the American public, and they are very much part of the phenomenon that has produced um, candidates uh, who are quite unconventional in terms of uh, the American political tradition, whether it's uh, Bernie Sanders or or Donald Trump. Uh, and I think there are several issues that that, uh, that are being discussed, although somewhat incoherently. One is the question of American interventionism. Um, that is, uh, should the United States rely uh, heavily on its uh, military power to deal with issues like um, uh, Islamist extremism? Uh, almost everyone has concluded that the Invasions of uh, Iraq and the pacification campaign ongoing in Afghanistan uh, were mistakes. Um, Even President Obama has admitted that uh, the intervention in Libya uh, was a mistake. Um, And we have uh, one candidate, Hillary Clinton, who very clearly uh, was uh, uh, part of the decision-making process to do all of those things. Uh, And had she had her way, we would have... Uh, intervened in Syria as well uh and i don't think this has much resonance in the country in fact it causes a great deal of disquiet and were there any candidate other than donald trump uh opposing her uh, she would uh, she would be very in very great uh, trouble uh, over these these issues uh, the fact is of course that trump also uh expresses Concern about interventionism um, uh, and um, uh, and about issues in the middle east um, and suggest that he would take a more hands off or neutral position on questions there, uh, but he's so incoherent that it's very impo- very difficult almost impossible uh, to to know what what he might he might do.
1: I mean, he does tend to say one thing one day and then the complete opposite, you know, two hours later. So it is, it is, as you well, say, he really a, hard to...
2: He has a certain consistency. Um, he, you know, his slogan, America First, um, uh, places him very much in a, in a populist uh, political tradition in the United States, um, uh, harking back to the Know-Nothing Party in the 19th century. Um, and um, he is consistent uh, in 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 that and also in expressing uh various forms of prejudice um, which uh are deeply offensive to much of the public uh, i think that accounts for the adverse reaction to his uh, uh doubling down on his uh, profiling and uh, exclusion of muslims proposals after orlando um, people are upset that the interventions in the Middle East and the blowback from the Middle East have uh, caused grave damage to the constitutional traditions of the United States and and fostered something of a garrison state in the United States. Um, and when you talk about profiling and additional police uh, intrusions against uh, communities in the country that are not white and male, I think you get a very adverse reaction from uh, a very large number of people. And that accounts for, I think, for the dip in the polls that uh, his statements appear to have caused.
1: Yeah, but that's true what you say about the sort of garrisonizing of the American state. And, of course, there are huge um, economic consequences to that, too. So he could... Make a sort of anti military industrial complex argument if he were serious and saying you know let let's spend money on on revamping our decaying infrastructure rather than on um, building up forces for disastrous interventions overseas, but i haven 't seen him making those kind of arguments yet maybe that's
2: no you know, i i, think I don't think he makes coherent policy for puts forward coherent policy proposals but in some ways as I said at the outset he and uh, Sanders represent two sides of the same phenomenon uh, populism um, uh, a sense that it's time to uh, turn to tending uh, to our own requirements at home uh, and to reduce the burdens uh, that we have abroad um, in order to do that so yes uh, implicit in his uh... Um, Approach is a, uh, a turn away from the dominance of the military-industrial complex and the impulse to intervention that has guided us uh, uh, in the post-Cold War period.
1: So, um, turning to one kind of specific instance of that, Syria. Um, just recently, we had this um, news about these 61 unnamed members of the diplomatic corps who had um, signed something in in the dissent channel calling for robust intervention um, against Assad, apparently as a way of forcing him to the negotiating table. It didn't strike me as terribly coherent, but do you think that this kind of impulse, which is definitely very widespread in, you know, amongst the the mainstream media commentators in this country. Do you think it it could actually rise up to a crescendo in the election period? And it would be something that, you know, for example, Hillary Clinton could get on board with and and that there might be um, much more impetus for, you know, doing something (laughs) against Assad that could have, of course, just horrendous unknowable
2: consequences we don't know we don't know the the proposal doesn't appear to have any um a clear objective uh, you you say it's intended to uh, force us out to the negotiating table um uh, that's uh, that's not clear and uh, it's also rather unlikely um uh, under the circumstances um uh, there appear to be some assumptions in that which are quite commonplace um one is that uh, regime change invariably leads to the improvement of the situation uh, where it occurs, and we ought to know better than that by now. Uh, we have multiple instances of the opposite happening, uh, in, even in recent times. Um, and uh, it does seem to be more of the kind of feel-good use of force uh, approach, um, uh, although there may be more behind it. Uh it obviously coincides to a great extent with Secretary of State John Kerry's uh viewpoint, uh and it's consistent with Hillary Clinton's viewpoint. However, in the general public I think this has this falls flat. Uh we've seen some op ed pieces and other bandwagoning uh by aspirants for the job of Secretary of State in the Clinton administration, you know, supporting uh, this this um uh, uh this this uh, uh statement uh by the whoever they are um, uh employees of the department of state but generally speaking i think it's fallen flat and uh it's drawn a fair amount of derision uh quite correctly i think so um i don't believe uh that uh there is a mood in the country um in that sur- uh for a surge toward uh, greater involvement on in the military terms in Syria. I think the public doesn't know what to do about Syria, uh, and they're largely unaware of the huge loss of life and displacement of people that the fighting which we have uh, aided and, ab- and abetted has 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 caused.
1: Of course, people in this country generally think of Syria in terms of in terms only of refugees and refugees who are seeking to flood into Europe, mainly, but also to break down the, the borders of our country. Um, there's a sort of that, that's the way people look at Syria. They don't look at it as a an, a country that still has large portions of its landmass intact, even though they are hosting a lot of internally displaced people in their own country. And have just terrible needs and one where our policy has, has been, you say that it caused a lot of the, the, uh, killing. I, I think that's probably true, but it's definitely contributed to a lot of the killing there. Um,
2: so let's hope it's a direct, there's a direct line of causation from the invasion, destabilization, uh, of Iraq and the kindling there of sectarian warfare, uh, and the destabilization and kindling of sectarian warfare in Syria. Uh, so we look at Syria, you're quite correct, mainly in terms of refugee flows, but we do so with a curious blind spot, um, which uh, enables us to deny any responsibility uh, for the creation of those refugee flows um, and we commiserate with Europe, but we do nothing uh, very uh, substantial uh, to to aid in containing or resolving the problem which we had such a hand in creating. Uh, so it's a fairly irresponsible um, attitude um, on our part, uh, quite aside from uh, the, un- the inherent injustice of denying refuge to uh, people who through no fault of their own have gotten caught up in um, in civil strife in which to which we are a party um, it's uh, when you think about Syria one of you know there are all sorts of ironies uh, no one ever mentions international law and the concept of sovereignty uh, we're intervening notwithstanding every principle of international law. no one has empowered the United States to do that uh, in that regard, we are distinguished from russia which is there by invitation of the incumbent government? Um, so um, I think um, Syria is not an issue in this campaign in the United States. Probably should be, uh, but um, we have a long way to go to come to grips uh, with the situation and how it came about, uh, and we're we're not there yet.
1: I guess you know if. As much as people think that there is a justification for U.S. military involvement action in Mm -hmm. Syria, it goes back to this um, notion of responsibility to protect R2P that was adopted by the United Nations um, a few years ago and then was invoked at the time of the um, NATO action against Libya, but then was – Willfully, by several of the NATO powers, including Washington, um, stretched and, and the mission was was extended ways beyond protecting a reportedly threatened population in Benghazi. Although the reports were never actually confirmed, um, but it went way beyond protection of that population to regime overthrow. And um, so, so, the, the whole R two P concept. I think in most of the world, got kind of um, sullied by the way that it was abused and misused by the United States and, and NATO allies at that time. So you're right, there's, there, there's very little international law constitutionality or legality to what the United States has been doing that. And that seems almost absent from the discussion in this country. It's as though international law has nothing to do with the United States.
2: Right. We insist in the East Asian context on what we call a rule-bound order, meaning international law, uh, as it affects um, the right of our armed forces to enter the uh, nearby seas of China. But elsewhere, and particularly in the Middle East, we pay no attention to it at all. Uh, There are all sorts of Security Council resolutions that uh, Israel has scoffed at and ignored. Um, Nobody talks about protecting the Palestinians through uh, R2P. The principle of the responsibility to protect, in my view, was destroyed in Libya. It had received greatly hedged support from uh, the Chinese, the Russians, um, uh, the Indians, and others. Only because the Arab League, that is the regional organization, uh, called for it, uh, and uh, and the great powers on the Security Council uh, deferred to the regional organization. Uh, there's no such uh, unanimity with respect to Syria, which is in many respects a proxy war between Saudi Arabia, Iran, between us and the Russians. So. Uh, uh, and uh, between various islamist tendencies whether they're shiite or sunni um so um, and i should mention that the turks uh, uh and the kurds and others are also participants <laughs> so it's a multi um sided conflict um which bears no resemblance to libya uh and uh, if if there ever had been any impulse to, uh, invoke the responsibility to protect, as I say, uh, the abuse of that principle in Libya, uh, transforming it into an over effort at regime change, basically, um, destroyed, destroyed that, um, and it can't happen. It also, by the way, um, you know, what happened to the late Colonel Gaddafi, um, uh, which was that he was solemnized with a butcher knife in a drain pipe, is uh, not an encouragement to um, uh, Bashar al-Assad or other uh, people we might think of trying to remove from office uh, uh, to do anything but fight to the end.
1: So, um, if Chas W. Freeman Jr. were Secretary of State, would he? urge negotiations with President Assad
2: yes Um, Assad is a reality Uh, the effort to remove him as a reality has not succeeded Um, he clearly has the support of a substantial part of the Syrian population Uh, perhaps not because they love him or because they fear him but because they fear the alternatives uh, to him um, and he can't be ignored. Um, he is part of the Syrian reality and a very important part of it. Um, I think the Russian intervention in Syria, which uh, represents a really quite effective uh, use of limited force to achieve limited diplomatic objectives, I think that intervention has, in, in effect, forced the United States into... Something uh closer to a real peace process than the um, Geneva meetings we had been uh staging uh and part of that is that uh it's no longer a given i believe uh, that Assad must go um, before uh, a transition occurs and that uh, it's also it's also uh, been necessary for the United States to accept accept Iran uh, and, uh, and uh, Russia as uh, full participants in any solution uh, in Syria. And for Saudi Arabia, in effect, to do likewise, uh, although very grudgingly. Uh, peace is not uh, around the corner in Syria, unfortunately. Uh, but any peace that occurs has got to include uh, the people with strength on the ground, and that emphatically includes President Assad.
1: So I just um, recall for listeners to this podcast that Charles Freeman was um, Assistant Secretary of Defense at the time of the um, negotiation with the Cubans, the South Africans, and others that resulted in an end to the civil war in Angola and um, you were very much involved. You were the lead person in that negotiation. I assume you were dealing with a lot of very distasteful people, but you did succeed in ending a civil war and lulling back a South African um, expeditionary force in Southwest Africa and in Angola that, that had huge consequences.
2: So, Yeah, I, I was actually, at the time, I was actually principal deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Africa under uh, Ch- uh, Chester Crocker and I-, I give great credit to Chet Crocker for um, building a framework in which various very recalcitrant parties were forced finally to compromise and and to and to create uh, Namibian independence and uh, Cuban troop withdrawal and um, uh, in effect the end of colonialism in Africa it was one of the few exercises of really creative Diplomacy and statecraft uh, during the Cold War era, and it should serve as a model for Syria. It shows that, uh, as you as you say, uh, disputes with many parties to them uh, are not impossible. Um, you have to figure out what each of the parties wants, and also what they fear losing, and con- construct uh, linkages between them in order to achieve. Um, uh, a process that can lead to peace. And sometimes this means doing things yourself um, that um, don't make sense in the long term, um, but you know, for tactical reasons uh, assist the process. Uh, and in that context, the United States in Angola provided weapons to an insurgency led by Jonas Savimbi and hoped uh, and eventually succeeded in obtaining an opportunity for Mr. Savimbi and his political party to participate in elections in Angola. Unfortunately, that did not work out for him, uh, and uh, that was too bad. But the fact is that the aiding of Savimbi was anathema to many people, and yet it was an absolutely essential part of putting uh, pressure on the Cubans and Angolans, uh, uh, to uh, to deal with the South Africans, which they didn't want to do, and so I think uh, that is, in a sense, a model, um, and it, it does uh, suggest that the use of force or covert action in some circumstances can be a uh, an important uh, part of the leverage for for political settlement.
1: But I, th- I think the the essential first step is that you need to know what your political goals are, and that exactly. kind of cloud fit that- 101 i mean you don't want to just leap into something military because you feel the
2: urge (laughs) no i think that's the issue what what are you trying to achieve and what do the parties think about that Um, and as i said what do they want and what do they fear and can you um, create a, a, a political geometry in which they conclude that it's in their interest to do what you want them to do not simple um, but it's called Statecraft and Diplomacy, and it's been quite absent from our international relations for a while.
1: So um, turning now to the question of Palestine, um, which, you know, obviously has been deeply politicized in this country for a long time. And now suddenly new things are, are happening, especially in the Democratic Party Platform Committee, where you have Cornell West and Jim Zogby, you know, Openly raising the issue of Palestinian equality and the need for the Palestinians to actually have self-determination and all those other fine things that they've been promised for far too long. And really riveting discussions there on the Democratic Platform Committee that, you know, we have never seen before. And there was a vote, I guess, in 2012 on the matter. I'm reading now the uh, introduction to the section in your book, America's continuing misadventures in the Middle East. There's a section in the book called The Role of the Israel-Palestine Conflict um, that has of a masterly introduction. And in it, you write about your gradual and begrudging realization that I had been wrong in my presumption that Israel desired peace and reconciliation. And you write about this here, with great reluctance, I came to see that that given U.S. enablement, Israel has never been prepared to risk peace with those it displaced from their homes in Palestine. The now defunct American-sponsored peace process on which the United States staked its reputation in the Middle East and elsewhere and which I labored to support has been revealed to all as part of an elaborate diplomatic deception intended to provide political cover for Israel's continued territorial expansion at Palestinian expense. Those are strong words, Chad Freeman.
2: Yes, um, and uh, as, as I said in the passage you read, um, I came to those conclusions with great uh, reluctance. Um, but um, that is, uh, unfortunately, a very accurate uh, portrayal of what's, uh, what's happened. Um, What is happening on this issue, uh, you referred to the Democratic Party uh, convention and platform fight. Uh, What is happening on this issue, in a sense, uh, is uh, uh, partly about uh, the awareness of uh, uh, some Americans, uh, an increasing number of Americans, of the suffering of the Palestinians. But I think even more than that, it's, um, it's a reaction by... The most, uh, the the group that is most intensely concerned about events in Palestine, namely the American Jewish community, uh, to Israel's secession from the universal values of of Judaism and its uh, retreat into tribalism, its um, its uh, repudiation of the values of the European Enlightenment. with which uh, the greater part of the of the uh, Jewish communities in the West uh, closely identify, and its participation in uh, the oppression uh, by uh, very uh, almost Kafkaesque uh, bureaucratic and legal uh, means of another people, um, on terms that uh, uh, Jews are very familiar with. Uh, so there's a very large part of the American Jewish community now that that doesn't want to be associated with the uh, Zionist project as it has evolved and uh, wishes to dissociate the United States from that. And uh, I think their anguish is quite uh, palpable and real and it's finding expression in the platform fight.
1: So um, there are a number of... Different Jewish American um, organizations that have different kind of strategies or attitudes on this. Of course, there are still a lot of Jewish American organizations that are staunch supporters of Netanyahu and forces further to his right that he seems to play with very expertly, I would say, by, you know, bringing them into government and then, you know, saying that he's the only actor who can who can protect Israel from their extremism while he's also helping them. So, you know, there there are obviously Jewish Americans who support that. There are other Jewish Americans who oppose that, and I think you're right to say that their numbers are growing, but then some Jewish American and other American organizations are arguing for BDS boycott, divestment and sanctions, and then There's a sort of a group in the middle that don't like the occupation, um, but say that boycott, divestment and sanctions is harmful to the anti-occupation campaign. What do you think? I mean, you've got your experience, obviously, in dealing with South Africa back in the day and lots of experience of dealing with Israel and Palestine issues. What do you think about the, the BDS movement?
2: Well, it's clearly uh, gained a great deal of ground in in Europe, um, uh, much less uh, here in the United States, although uh, some of the mainstream Christian churches are taking up elements of it. Um, I personally don't like um, sanctions, ostracism, and so forth as uh, means of influence. Um, They can be effective, however, but there has to be uh there has to be they have to be very fine tuned and there's a tendency sometimes to to go overboard uh, with them i mean for example uh you do yourself no good if you uh if you boycott uh universities as institutions and also uh boycott uh, their individual members from uh, from dialogue with you um, you have to keep keep a sense of balance there has to be an opening there has to be an opportunity for those with whom you disagree to argue their case and and have it rebutted. Um, uh, they have to be able to come out and see uh, what the broader world um, uh, is 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 thinking and concluding uh, about behavior. That you know, when they're all clustered together in their in their own uh, company, uh, nobody wants to nobody wants to admit that um, there's there's a problem. So. I think BDS is gaining ground. I think in some respects it's problematic and it's certainly very divisive in the Jewish uh, community. There's a question, for example, should it be directed only at the activities of Israel in the occupied territories, uh, which to me makes sense, or or should it, uh, should it extend to Israel proper uh, on the grounds that Israel discriminates uh, very badly against uh, uh, Israeli citizens of Palestinian origin. So a lot of questions. I don't think they're simple answers, but the fact is that these questions are now being debated, discussed, and um, that is the case because people are tired of uh, seeing no one do anything about a situation that uh, many find intolerable. And I have to say uh, also uh, there is a measure of resentment in the public at large with the, in effect, dicta- dictation of U.S. Uh, policy by a very small uh, right-wing uh, element of the American Jewish community that doesn't really speak uh, for more than, uh, than, than a minority. Um, uh, so a minority of a minority is determining uh, policies that affect everyone, and um, many people don't like that um, any more than they like the NRA Doing the same thing on, on gun control. So, uh, yes, this issue which, which was closed, which was not openly, uh, debated and discussed now is, uh, and I expect that trend to continue as long as Mr. Netanyahu and others like him, uh, double down on the policies that the world objects to.
1: So, um, do you see th- this becoming an issue in the elections as we get closer to November, or is it too early to tell yet?
2: I think it's too early to tell. First of all, we don't know in those elections how many parties and candidates there are going to be. Um, uh, there are, uh, there's already a significant uh, following for the first time for the Libertarian Party, uh, which is, has fielded two experienced, uh, former governors as president and vice presidential candidates, um, and which appears to have around 10% of the the vote at present. Uh, Perhaps it's none of the above vote in terms of the Democrats and Republicans. Uh, We don't know whether Bernie Sanders is going to um, run on a third-party ticket or fold himself into the Democratic Party. That's part of his leverage uh, at the in the platform fight is the possibility that he could um, return to his roots, which were not as part of the Democratic Party, uh, but as an independent Um, talk of him perhaps running in uh, with a party like the Greens who are on the ballot everywhere. Um, uh, He would certainly energize um, that group um, in a way that they have not been able to do. Um, And uh, we'd, We've we've seen efforts by the neoconservative group um, in the Republican Party to uh, dump Trump and, and, and form some other uh, party. They seem to have given up on the idea of uh, another party, but the movement to dump Trump at the at the convention is growing apace. Uh, so we don't know who the candidates will be at this point, uh, other than probably Hillary Clinton for the Democrats, uh, and we don't know what the uh, political kaleidoscope will look like uh, still that's how the pieces will turn and settle down at the end so yes I think it's much too early to to see this as an issue uh, if Bernie Sanders runs it probably will be uh, because he has quite forthrightly um, stated uh, his view that we need a, a balanced policy toward Israel and the Palestinians
1: so actually the, the election looks More interesting from a purely electoral point of view than any election here for a long while. And I wonder in, you know, in that kind of a context of political uncertainty, maybe not as much here as there is in Britain with the Brexit or whatever, but, you know, whether whether there would be people motivated to launch a military adventure as a distraction from political turmoil at home? Maybe it's too early to even think about that.
2: Well, you know, I would simply point out that we're already engaged in multiple military distractions, um, and um, they haven't had much uh, effect uh, on the politics other than to turn people off. Um, so uh, I'm not sure that that works. Um, And, uh, you know, barring some sort of a major confrontation with, uh, uh, Russia or China, um, I don't see, um, I don't see that as a uh, plausible, uh, plausible scenario. I think, uh, there is, there, this election is being driven by a combination of malcontent and, and malaise, uh, in the economy and in the, in the body politic. Uh, discussed with dysfunctional politics in Washington, uh, a sense that uh, uh, we are not being led uh, properly by anyone, uh, that the views of the public are not uh, being uh, reflected in in the way in which we're governed, uh, that we have a systemic crisis. Uh, There are people concerned about uh, our civil liberties uh, having been eroded during the struggle against uh, terrorism, um, which, by the way, isn't a very significant threat um, in the United States yet, although uh, Islamophobia uh, is the best recruitment force we could come up with for future terrorism. So, no, I I don't, it's it's all very confused. Um, There's no clear direction. Uh, But in some respects, uh, we seem to be in an election season of the sort that, we really haven't seen since perhaps 1850, when the Republican Party emerged as a third party and then became uh, one of the two main uh, political forces in the country. And there, the issues also were confusing. They were states' rights, they were slavery, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it wasn't entirely clear uh, what the what the differences uh, uh, between political tendencies were or where the debate stood. Um, Helena, I've got to get myself off the phone. Uh,
1: no, really, I appreciate both the, the time and the content of the uh, the call, Chaz. That's really great. I
2: hope you can make something of it. And
1: I definitely can. It's good, good to talk to you anyway.
2: All right, great.
1: Okay, um, um, good luck in Berlin. Tell them about your, all your books. Tell them to buy your books.
2: I will, I will. Okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, all right. bye-bye then.
2: Yeah. Bye-bye.